Father, we come this morning to celebrate the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity who came into our world, who added to his divine nature a human nature, who took on flesh, a human body, a human spirit, human nature, and grew up as a human man, a Jew, in a backwater town, in a forgotten part of a Roman province, born in a manger, without any, anything to his body or his appearance that we should be drawn to him, but coming nevertheless in the spirit and the power of the living God. And who came to us and offered himself as king and yet was rejected by the majority of people in his own day and by the majority of people in our own. Father, we pray this morning that as we come to you and as we open your word and as we hear about the coming of the Messiah, the greatest demonstration of the love of God that has ever been given. Father, I pray that we would this morning shout Hosanna and crown Jesus as king of our own hearts and of our own lives, and that we would let his rule extend over our minds and our mouths and the way that we live. Father, I pray that as we open your word, that we would submit ourselves to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, Chili Bible. Everybody excited to be here this morning? I am excited to be here this morning. I got to tell you, uh, Pastor Jim and Darcy and Spencer Smith and I all spent most of the week up in Chicago at McCormick's Place. Am I on on this mic? All right, good. Um, at an event called the Gospel Coalition Conference. It's about 5,500 uh, pastors and uh, some spouses mixed in there. And uh, just a phenomenal time over uh, about two days, uh, Tuesday uh, afternoon and evening, uh, Wednesday all day, and then uh, Thursday morning. We didn't stay for the post-conference stuff that I think was still going until about 10 that night. Uh, but just a tremendous time of worship together uh, with Keith and Kristen Getty, and then fantastic preaching of God's Word by uh, men that I look up to, uh, guys like C.J. Mahaney and uh, John Piper and Tim Keller, and just some fantastic uh, once-in-a-lifetime opportunities uh, to hear these guys. This is the second time I've heard some of them, so it's not totally once-in-a-lifetime. But that being said, uh, just a very encouraging, refreshing, renewing week uh, for those of us uh, who went uh, it's always great to fellowship with other believers around God's Word and to uh, be encouraged uh, with them. Um, I, uh, they had a bookstore there with uh, 2,500 different book titles, all at 40% off. So I, I, got my, I got my book lust going and, uh, <laughs> and, and made a list of some of the things I'd like to buy and bought a few of them. Uh, and just had a, we just had a tremendous time. Uh, and you all provided for us to go and do that. 
uh, as part of our church's budget and uh, and I just wanted to express my appreciation to you all as a church family for making that possible for us to do uh, because we were really blessed by it so thank you uh, these are some pretty exciting days for us as a church how many of you thought you would uh, see Jesus before you saw a driveway out on the north side of our building. <laughs> okay, raise your hand, be honest. <laughs> okay, uh, there are days that I was among that group, okay, and I'm one of the younger ones here this morning. So, uh, but that is probably going to happen, I think, by June. That will be in, so that'll be exciting. Um, and we are finally getting that done after I don't know how many years. I think it was first proposed in like 1986. Um, but it's going to get done, and we, we have needed it for a long time, and we have needed it to minister to the needs of our older folks and those who have mobility problems, and, um, and that's exciting to see God move so that we can make that happen. Uh, we're doing lots and lots of exciting, powerful, gospel-centered ministry in our church. Uh, our church is growing. This is a fun time to be here, isn't it? Isn't this fun? Isn't this, is, isn't this what you dreamed that church could be? Uh, and this is, because uh, it is for me. I hope that it is for you. And I hope that you're enjoying it and being blessed by being part of this church family, because I sure am. And I hope you're encouraged this morning. A lot of neat things that are happening. Uh, this week and next, we are taking a little break, a little detour off to the side from Second Peter. I know some of you were really hoping I would get off on false teachers again and beat on a few people. Um, you'll have to wait for another couple of weeks uh, for me to do that again, uh, because while that is really important that we be able to distinguish truth from error and right from wrong, and that which coheres with the Word of God from that which departs and is something different, uh, it's also really important that we take time to celebrate the coming of the King. And so this week, we're going to uh, talk about the events surrounding Palm Sunday, and next week, we're going to celebrate Easter, and then we'll dive back into Second Peter, and I'll beat on some more false teachers, I promise, all right? Um, but uh, this week, we're going to look at um, the, the, the events immediately following Jesus' triumphal entry. I have preached uh, every one of the gospel accounts of Jesus' entry into, uh, into the city of Jerusalem at one time or another. But part of what makes Palm Sunday exciting and dramatic as we read it is what happened afterward. Because you've got this great crowd of Galilean pilgrims who are coming into the city. And they're all shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're ready to crown him king, make him Messiah. And yet, by the end of that same week, the Jerusalem crowd, the sophisticates from the city, not the hillbillies from the country, have all decided that Jesus is not everything that they hoped that he would be. And they shout, crucify, crucify. Let his blood be on us and on our children forever. And so I want to look at some of the things that Jesus taught in the interim between those two things. And I've called this message Palm Sunday Parables because Jesus is going to tell a couple of parables just after 
he comes into the city uh, that's going to illustrate what he knows is going to happen. I want to look at him this morning. So if you've got your Bible, uh, Matthew chapter 21, uh, verses 23 to 46 is what we're going to look at this morning. And this is where Jesus is going to get challenged, and then he's going to give some answers. Matthew chapter 21, verse 23, Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? And Jesus replied, I will ask you a question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven? Or from men. They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. Then he said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Uh, Jesus came in on Sunday, the first day of the week, according to the Jewish understanding of, of the calendar. And he came in riding on a donkey's colt, full of a donkey that had never been ridden before, uh, coming as with the universally recognized within Judaism symbolism of the, of the king who is coming in peace. Presented himself as the Prince of Peace, the Messiah, just as Zechariah said would happen 450 years previous. Jesus did it. He's making a, a very direct claim I am the one Zechariah wrote about. I am the one Isaiah wrote about. I am the one Moses predicted. I am the one Abraham saw. I am the one that even Balaam, the false prophet, could look into the future and was given revelation by God and could see. I'm the one that was to come. The one who is the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent. I'm the one that all of the law and the prophets and the writings spoke about. And so he goes into the temple and he starts knocking stuff over. When kings came into power, what the good kings did was they went into the temple, which was next to the palace, and they would clean up the mess. And kings, whether they were Hezekiah or Josiah or David or Solomon or whatever, if they were a good king, they would exalt and lift up and purify the temple worship. And Jesus goes into the temple and he sees that in the place where the Gentiles are supposed to have space to come and worship, what has happened instead is that people have turned it into a thoroughfare where they're carrying stuff through and out on either side of the temple, uh, kind of like they do in Dallas with the airport. Uh, you know, the airport connects two ends of town and you can drive through and it's a shortcut across. And... And so they start charging you at both ends. And if you've been there too short a time to have caught a flight, then you get a big charge because uh, they don't want you doing that. Well, people were doing similar type thing 
in Jesus' day was the temple. It was in the middle of town. It was the most direct route. We'll just cut through the court of the Gentiles and be on our way to the other side. So they've got their carts and stuff, and they're going through. But what the priests are also doing is this. They are conducting business out there in the temple courts, and they are changing money for people because people have, have come from all over the world to worship God at the temple, and they're changing money, and they're making money on the exchange rate. How many of you have been out of the country? You had to go to the, to the Casa de Cambios or something like this, right? The money changer? And what are they doing? They're making money on the exchange. And so even though the exchange rate might be, you know, 16 to 1, they're giving you 14 to 1, and then they're pocketing the difference. And as people are coming in, what the priests are doing is saying, no, 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 the sacrifice you brought, that's not acceptable. You have to take one of ours. Okay, well, here's some money. No, 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 you've got to change that into sanctuary shekels first and then after that then you can buy the inflated priced lamb or goat or sheep or dove that we've got here and what they're doing is using people's desire uh, to worship God as a means of making money by the way does anybody ever hear of anything that still people still do that yes that happens what's Jesus think about it well, he shows what he thinks about it. He goes and he makes himself a bullwhip. And he goes through and he starts knocking over tables and running these guys out. Now, I don't know about you, but when I grew up in, in church, you know, a lot of times what I saw was kind of this painting of this bearded woman they called Jesus, okay? And he's just kind of this, this kind of guy with soft hands and kind of a you know, kind of a girly hairdo, and he just kind of looks like a woman, except he has a beard. But you, you don't, you don't get, a, get a correspondence between that guy and this guy, who's just going through the temple, just knocking people out. Get out of here, whack! Okay, now this is a guy who works with his hands, who builds everything by hand as a carpenter. So I imagine when you've taken a lick from that whip, you know you've been swatted. Okay, and people start clearing out, and they get gone. Well, the priests are having a problem because all of a sudden, Jesus has wrecked the program. We were making lots of money on this deal, and now Jesus has wrecked the deal. And so they say, by what authority are you doing these things? In other words, by what authority are you riding into town on a donkey, Jesus, like the Messiah? We don't think you're the Messiah. And on top of that, what gives with knocking over our stuff and running our people out with lash marks on the backside of them? What's up with that? And so Jesus says, well, okay, you want to play 20 questions? I'll ask you a question. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or was it from men? In other words, did John act in the power of God or was he just a guy out there doing his own thing? What do you think? And he puts them on the horns of a dilemma. 
because they rejected John also. And he was the forerunner that Malachi prophesied. And they rejected him. But the people that they claimed to lead all held that John was the forerunner, was a prophet, was the one who was to announce the Messiah. And so if they come out and say openly, well, John was just some random dude, then, all, then they will lose face and lose the following of all the people that they're leading. And that would really be a disaster in their mind. But if they say, well, no, he came and spoke from God, then the next question is this. So how come you didn't believe him? Because remember what John said? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. About Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. And so if you believed John, you'd believe what he said about me, and you would understand clearly by what authority I'm doing these things. Because John was from God, I'm from God, you need to listen to me. But they don't want to be boxed in by one of those options, and so they just go, meets me, I don't know. And Jesus says, okay, fine. I won't tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. But Jesus is going to tell them. He's going to tell them, I'm not going to tell you, but then he's going to give two parables in which he does tell them exactly why. The first one he tells is the parable of the two sons. It says this, verse 28, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, Go and work today in my vineyard. I will not, he answered, but later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Now, when you read this little story, there's a couple things that stand out. The first son is a rebellious kid. Dad comes and asks him, go out and work in the vineyard, and he says, uh-uh, I'm not going. Now, how many of you parents have ever had a child say to you, a child that you brought into the world and feed and clothe and house and love and care for, ever had a child say to you, no, I'm not doing it? Okay, now, that has never happened at our house. I don't know what's wrong with the rest of you, but, um, but no, I mean, that happens, right? But let me tell you this, that happens in our day. It also happened in Jesus' day, but in Jesus' day, this was regarded as a shocking, terrible, like world-altering thing that you would say to your father as a son, no, I'm not going to go and do what you ask. This is horrible. This causes your father to lose face. This is a terrible thing. 
And so people, when they hear this, you're exp- if you're in the audience and he says, the father had two sons and he asked the first one, go out and work in my vineyard. And he said, no, I won't. Everybody sitting there goes, oh. They can't imagine that a person would say that to their father because the father was held in an esteemed position. And so to be openly rebellious against your father was to to sin in a huge way. But later, that son complied and obeyed. It's a shameful and shocking thing that the first son did. But later he repented and obeyed. The other son, though, is verbally compliant. Oh, yes. Yes, Father dear, I will go. But he didn't go. And then Jesus asked, which one did what was right in the father's eyes? Which one did what the father wanted? The one who was initially rebellious, but who later repented and did what the father asked? Or the one who was outwardly, verbally compliant, but inwardly in his heart rebellious? Which one? And they all say, well, the first one. Because even though he initially rebelled, he actually did obey later. And Jesus says that this parable is like the fact that outwardly righteous people, like the priests and elders, didn't repent and do what God wanted. Instead, like the formerly rebellious son, the tax collectors and the prostitutes were the kind of people that the religious regarded as the worst sinners, but actually because they repented and did what the Father asked, they were the ones who did what the Father wanted. Not the religious, not the outwardly compliant with God, but inwardly rebellious in their hearts. And the point of the parable is is that It's the actuality, not the appearance, that matters. Given a choice between the two, which which son would you pick? The one who rebelled initially but later obeyed or the one who said he would obey but didn't? Jesus says the ones that God likes are the ones who obey even if they rebelled to start with. That just merely verbal obedience is not obedience. And Jesus says, far better a repentant tax collector, a repentant prostitute, a repentant sinner than a rebellious priest, than a rebellious elder, than a rebellious leader. Jesus tells another story after this. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a watchtower. 
And then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. And when the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. And the tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time. And the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his own son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. And when the chief priests and Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Okay, who's the landowner in the parable? God is the landowner. What's the vineyard? Well, according to verse 43, it's the kingdom of God. Who are the servants? Servants are God's prophets. Who are the tenants? Well, the priests and elders, even they recognize that the priests and elders are the tenants. They're the ones, because this parable is spoken against them, and they recognize it. They're, sh- they're not the sharpest knives in the drawer, but they get that. I'm the tenant in this little story. And who's the son? Jesus. Jesus is telling this story to show that the nation of Israel and its leaders typically, throughout their history, normally did not follow what God wanted and did not render to him that which was his. In fact, if you read through the prophets over and over and over and over, what you'll see is you whore after other gods, you commit adultery with other gods, you run after other lovers, and you forget about me the living God who brought you life, who brought you out of Egypt, who saved you, who gave you the temple, who gave you the sacrifice, who gave you his word. I gave you and gave you and gave you and gave you and you rejected me. And in fact, they killed many of the prophets. Others of them they abused. Isaiah was sawn in half. It's a bad way to go out, just in case you're curious. Uh, Jeremiah was persecuted and abused and thrown in a mud hole and left there to die. Moses was constantly rebelled against to a point where God even said three different times, stand aside, Moses, I'm wiping them out. 
I'm starting over with you. And Moses says, now this is the mark, by the way, of a great leader, of a biblical God-honoring leader, of one who says, no, Lord, you wipe me out of your book, but not them. Strike the shepherd, not the sheep. And he stands in front of God's wrath for them. Over and over and over, the people rebelled against the king, the landowner. And he sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. And still they rebelled and rebelled and rebelled. And some of the servants they beat and abused and others they killed. And the history of the nation is of them rejecting every single one of the prophets that God sent. People rebelled against Moses. They rebelled against Elijah and Elijah's preaching. They sawed Isaiah in half. They threw Jeremiah in a pit. They locked up some of God's prophets like Micaiah. Remember him? He's the one during the time of Ahab. He said uh, he and the Ahab and the king of Judah are about to go off to war together. I believe it's Jehoshaphat is the king of Judah at the time. Jim will have to correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but they're about to go to war together. And Ahab's got all his false prophets and they got their deal going, you know. And, and oh, go into battle, kill king, you'll be successful. And the king of Judah says, isn't there a prophet of the Lord we can inquire of? And he says, well, and Ahab says, well, there's Micaiah, but I hate him because he only prophesies bad stuff about me and never anything good. Well, where is he? He's in prison. I put him there, you know, <laughs> getting rid of him. Okay. Well, get him out of prison and let's hear what the word of the Lord is. In fact, Jesus says it this way, was there ever a prophet you did not persecute? No. In their own day, the prophets were all persecuted and rejected. And now there are no more prophets. There are no more servants to come. Instead, God has chosen to send the Son. The Son has come to call the people to repentance and to claim what belongs to him, the kingdom. And Jesus tells them that if they reject the Son, that they will be treated just like the wicked tenants in this parable ought to be treated. And they're going to have that which is most precious to them destroyed. Does that happen? Yes. Because what happens? They reject the Son when He comes. And they all shout, crucify. And the king is crowned, but not with a crown of gold. And he's killed and rejected. And so God says, I will take away the kingdom from you and give it to other people who will give me my share of what is mine. And so the temple is destroyed, just as Jesus said it would be. And it will not be rebuilt until such time as the people begin to turn to the Lord once again. Until they recognize Jesus as king. 
And the place of the elders and the chief priests and those leaders was all taken away because they rejected the son. And see, the par- the, in, the, in the parable, the reason you would kill the son is this, is that the inheritance rules were such that if you, if there was no heir left to the property, whoever claimed it after a certain period of time, it became theirs. Possession really was nine-tenths of the law. And the thought was that if the son is coming, the old man has died. There is no more heir. And so if we kill him, then we get to claim the stuff. It'll be ours. And so the tenants conspire against the son and put him to death, thinking that they're going to then have what they want. But the owner of the vineyard is still around. And he comes in and he puts them to death and takes away the kingdom from them. The new tenants will be sought out. And new tenants, uh, you're looking at them. Look around. The largely Gentile church are the new, ten- the new tenants that Jesus prophesied would come. One day, I believe, and, and Romans teaches this, uh, the nation of Israel will be grafted back in to the olive tree that's theirs, but only after they recognize the Son as the coming King and Messiah. And Jesus, to underline the point, quotes Psalm 118 about the rejected stone. He says, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. He says, look here. You guys are going to reject me. I'm the central stone. I am the hinge point of all history. I'm the one who is the corner of the building, the one that you set everything else in definition to and by. And if you reject me, there's nothing left for you. I'm everything you were looking forward to. And if you reject me, there's no hope of any kind of relationship with God. And so he says this, he says, he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. And this is what I think he's saying. If you fall on Jesus in dependence on him, you don't come away from that unscathed. You are broken by the encounter. But you're broken in a good way. It's as if, In other words, you have a bone. Let's say you break your collarbone right here. This is easy to do. And and it grows back wrong. And so you got one arm that's kind of shorter than than the other one, and it doesn't function well. Okay. Your surgeon, if you want to have that fixed, your surgeon, what they'll do is re-break that bone and set it right. And then it will grow straight. And I think Jesus is saying something like that, that when we fall on him, we are broken. But we are broken so that we can grow straight. <laughs> because we are messed up people, amen? We are not people who uh, just on our own effort apart from God can just be just wonderful folk. No. We are people desperately, deeply, terribly fallen. 
and in need of God. And so when we come to Jesus, he does break us. He breaks us of our selfishness and our pride and our idolatry and our greed and our sinfulness. And then he puts us back together in a way that the bone grows straight. But he says, on the other hand, if this stone falls on you, you'll be crushed. In other words, you will be destroyed if you reject Jesus. I know it's not a popular idea in our day to talk about judgment. But over and over in the Bible, the Bible talks about judgment a lot. In fact, out of, I think it's about 200 or so chapters in the Bible, 160 times it talks about hell in just the New Testament. Okay, 200 chapters in the New Testament, 160 references to hell. You know, a dis, uh, put it in this perspective. Here to Chicago is about 200 miles. Somewhere around Princeton, every mile marker you get a sign that says judgment is coming. When you get to the end of this road, at some point you would get the idea that judgment's coming. And so the idea is, look, you need to flee from judgment. Yes, it will be painful when you come to Jesus because there'll be some things about you that he will change and it'll be hard and it'll hurt. But it's the only way that you can grow straight. And besides that, if you don't, if you reject him, that stone falls on you and you're destroyed and you experience judgment. So as we wrap up here, a couple questions for you. Which son are you going to be? Which son are you going to be? Because here's the reality. The world is full of all kinds of people but basically they fit into one of two categories. People who are rebellious and know they're rebellious, but who seek to obey God after a period of rebellion against him because they repent and turn to Jesus. Or there are people who say that they are going to obey God, but who never really do. You can't be a righteous person merely on the outside. That's called religion. And you can pick whichever one you want. You can pick Mormonism. You know, Mormons act pretty good, honestly. They have good families. They're nice people. You know, they're not even really all that annoying apart from when they come knock on your door. Buddhists, you know, can be pretty decent folks, along with a lot of Muslims, along with Hindus. They can all be nice people. But here's the deal. What they're, what, whatever you're doing in your religion is this. You're saying, oh, I'll obey God. Look at all the stuff I'm doing to please God. But you're not doing the one thing that the Father told you to do which is lay aside all that junk and come and bow before the son, the king. On the other side, there are people who 
recognize their sinfulness, even if they're very moral, even if they're very nice, even if they've grown up going to church, they understand that at the bottom of all things, there's not good people and bad people, there's bad people and then there's Jesus. See, I grew up going to church my whole life. I never got into all the stuff that people get into sometimes. You know, I wasn't sexually immoral. I was a virgin when I got married. I wasn't a drug addict. I've never smoked anything, never stuck anything up my nose, okay? Never shot anything up. You know, I've never done any of that. I was never a drunk. I was never any of the long laundry list of stuff that people can get into. But you know what? I was just as lost and destined for hell as somebody who had done all that stuff and got the T-shirt. Because here's the reality. There aren't good people and bad people. There's bad people in Jesus. And if we want to be a good person, we have to come to Jesus and admit that we're a bad person and have him change us. And say, God, I bring to you all my stuff, all my righteous stuff, and then realize it's nothing. And say, Jesus, I want you to be king of my life and my heart, and I'm going to turn my life over to you so that you can break me and set me right. Which son are you going to be? The one who is a rebel, a rebel, knows he's a rebel, and then obeys because he repents? Or the one who claims to be doing all kinds of good stuff? Whoever you ask, you know, hey, are you going to heaven? They all say the same thing. Yeah, I think so. Why do you think so? Well, you know, I'm a pretty good guy. You can ask Chuck Manson that, and he'll probably tell you, you know, I'm a pretty good guy. Only murdered a few people. People don't know where the standard is, but it's always left of them that's going to hell, you know? Are you going to be the first son, the one who did what the father wanted, or the second son, the one who claimed to never obey? Which are you going to be? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we pray that we would be wise sons, that we would be the ones who give the king, the landowner, you, what he is due, that we give you glory and honor and praise because you have sent your son for us and we have recognized that you alone are the only way by which a person might have your righteousness. That by the blood of the Son of God, we are cleansed from sin and made righteous. That through his death, we have forgiveness of sins. Through his resurrection, we have the power which gives us new life. Father, let us be the former rebels who now obey God because we have repented, not simply those who claim to and never obey. Father, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.